Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by one of our production coordinators, Jody Wall, one of our production managers, Thomas Kazakowski, and one of our quality control technicians, Shaylin Pressgraves. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP operations guide written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 10 on calibration curves. If you would like to follow along with us, then you can view the ICP operations guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. So let's, t- let's start off by talking about some of the basic considerations of calibration curves that Paul mentioned. First and foremost being your calibration standards and the importance of accuracy and those. And I will let anyone at the group who wants to speak about accurate calibration standards do their thing. So standards need to be prepared accurately. If the work instruction says to prepare your standard to 10 ppm, then you need to prepare your standard to 10 ppm because it's it's the standard that you're testing your sample against. So if you have a high or low standard, then you're going to get a false high or low reading in your sample. Another thing to consider, I would say, is try to make these by weight. I would avoid the volumetric flask at all costs because you're never going to know the true density of it for your dilutions. And my two cents is going to be to pay attention to your aliquot size. You want to make sure that you're making your standard using an aliquot, that you have a pipetter that is accurate and, you know, that could be checked on and all that kind of stuff. Right. We use 0.5 grams or above, but we don't go below 0.5 grams. Yeah, that's that's pretty good rule of thumb. I think our certificates say no less than 0.2 grams. That's a pretty good size. But yeah, you want good accuracy if... With a four-place balance, that's that seems to be a good range. Yeah, and if you have any questions about how to prepare calibration standards, just please reach out to us. That is all we do 24-7. Next up, I think the linearity of the, ca- the actual calibration curve is another important consideration. So depending on if you're doing axial versus radio on ICP-OES, your linearity range can sort of change depending on that viewing mode. And Thomas, I know that you've sort of noticed this as you developed our custom testing method. Yeah, with our old testing method, we used to go up to about 1 ppm, and it was definitely linear for everything. So we went from 0 to 0.1 to 1 ppm, and we never had any problems. We changed our method quite a bit and wanted to go higher so that we could basically do less preps to get stuff to fall within the curve. And found that the linearity was gets a lot worse when you're in axial mode towards 50 ppm, 100 ppm, especially for the low UV wavelengths. But um, radial mode was pretty good, um, radial for almost everything. So switching modes helps, but when you get outside the linear range, you just have to maybe change your model or you know cut some standards out and go on the low side. Definitely. I think uh, interferences are another important one. So if you have interferences that are present in your calibration standards that are not present in your sample, I think sometimes we think of it the other way. We worry about the interferences that are present in our sample. But Jody, I wonder, do you remember the old custom method that we had? There was like a magnesium line that would never work, right? Yeah, pretty much. If you knew if you were reading over your data and 
it suddenly said, oh, sure, magnesium works fine. Everybody knew to go double check that. Yeah, it's definitely an important thing to to consider is if you have a if you're calibrating for everything, you have to worry about some of the interferences that might be present because you are calibrating for everything. And then finally, I think we, you know, we have to worry about the uncertainty of the calibration curve method itself. And, you know, Shaylin, we do, when we certify products, we do a standard bracketing approach. And really, I mean, if you do an ICP assay using standard bracketing, usually what's, what's the type of uncertainty do you get on like a 1000 PPM product? Usually below 10 was usually the, the uncertainty that we get on a one, say 1K or 1K. Yeah, 1,000 ppm. Yeah, on a 1,000 ppm solution is usually between 3 and 10. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really dependent on your RSD. So what's the RSD of your run? So it seems like if your RSDs of your run are closer to 1.0, probably the uncertainty for that would be about 10. Yeah. But if everything is operational, performing right, Thomas, you reviewed a lot of the releasing data. What would you say on average when our RSDs are looking good? When things are looking good, I would say three to four. Three to four. Um, I don't usually see twos. It has to be a really, really good day to see that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's using this direct comparison approach. When we're talking about calibration curves, the uncertainty is a little bit larger because you have to take into account the uncertainty of, you know, your the uncertainty of your curve itself, the uncertainty of the prep of all the calibration standards. So really, we're talking, you probably want to be worried more about uncertainty within the realm of 2 to 10% relative. So Jody, you sort of have seen a lot of the results that come off our customs where we use a calibration curve to test. On average, what would you say are our passing percentages for like a control sample? I would say between 2 and 5 is, is pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah, so I would just recommend that if you require, you know, a lower uncertainty, you might want to switch to a different analysis method than a calibration curve. All right, so let's talk about the importance of matrix matching. Matching the matrix of your sa- of your standards to your sample. So this can be a lot easier said than done. And this was something I think it was interesting. Paul mentioned in the guide that you should try to, to match the matrix within 1%. But Thomas, you found that might not be the case for some of the some of our samples, right? For some of them, no. So when we're doing a calibration curve, I mean, like Jody said, the percentage off that you, you is about two to five percent. So we're not seeing a difference. Like if we're changing between nitric and HCl, we didn't see a difference because we're still within that range. Though our passing criteria was still okay, so no change there. But I know Jody has seen this effect on mass spec with one of our blends. Yeah, well, with more than one, I I try to pound that into people's head that you might be able to get away with it on OES when you're looking for 20 ppm. But when you're on mass spec and you're looking for 20 ppb, you're going to want that matrix matched as much as possible. Definitely. Next up, I think issues with nebulization efficiency. So this is kind of a matrix component. The nebulization efficiency, so think of your sample itself. Is it more viscous than your standards? Is it put up in some sort of organic solvent that's going to play a big impact i'll sort of throw this out to the group anyone heard of any weird issues with nebulization efficiency i kind of suspect that's what's going on when i see the matrix matching issues especially on the mass spec because that's where it seems to get more like a one percent acid difference and you might end up in trouble i think it's just your sensitivity we use the smaller nebulizer on that but i think it really you really have to think about even if you don't physically see it, 
obviously something that's, you know, 50% acid versus 10% acid is going to be a different viscosity. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a good way of seeing it because a lot of labs out there are using an internal standard and you have instant feedback. But of course, we've got a calibration curve that has everything in it. So we aren't monitoring one of those wavelengths consistently. I mean, I suppose you could look at argon, but it only tells you so much. It doesn't really tell you what the nebulizer is doing per se. Mm-hmm. I know Paul also mentioned in this chapter about the impact that plasma temperature can play. We don't really mess around when I mentioned last episode that we don't really mess around with RF power to really affect our, our plasma temperature. But we have sort of seen when we switched out to a ceramic outer tube, we saw a little bit better sensitivity. And it was always our thought process that maybe the plasma was a little bit hotter inside of that ceramic than it was in the glass. I don't know if you guys remember when we did those studies. It was a while back. But any thoughts on plasma temperature? I mean, it makes different elements behave differently in the plasma i mean it depends that's where the ion and atom lines come into effect and i'm not not really studied that but i know that's where it comes in all right so let's talk about you know matrix matching the importance of you know especially if you've got high total dissolved solids in your sample matching that matrix because you know sometimes you could see the signal of your sample do something strange i know shaylin you've done a lot of our trace mineral impurity work where we have samples that have really high total dissolved solids and we're measuring for, for trace elements. Do you see any sort of impact to the intensity for trace elements when there's a high total dissolved solid concentration? Yeah, there's a lot of bleed over. Like you'll see a lot of, um, like you'll have to clean your instrument probably in between your TMIs because there's so much total dissolved solids and because we run them straight mm-hmm. on our OES, but we prep them down to 100 ppm on 10 ppm? 100 ppm on our 100 mass spec. 100 ppm yeah. on the mass spec. So since it's diluted down so much on mass spec, we don't really have to worry about it getting the getting it so dirty, but we definitely have to worry about how dirty it makes our OES systems. Yeah, and that's something, you know, yeah, if you're matrix matching dirty samples, you can expect probably more maintenances in your future. That's something that we've talked about previously in previous episodes of this podcast series, but proper maintenance is just so important to make sure you're getting accurate results on a calibration curve method or really on any other method. Yeah, especially with those sticky elements. Like a lot of elements have calcium in them. A lot of them have so- sodium in them. And those are really sticky and they will stay in your system unless you clean it out properly. We use 10% nitric, but if that doesn't work, we clean the instrument like entirely. So last up, the, the, the last thing that Paul mentioned in this chapter was really starting to talk about internal standards. So Thomas, you mentioned that we don't use an internal standard, and I think a lot of people are surprised by this. Yeah, so we don't have, one of the most important things when you're talking about internal standards is you need to choose something that's not in your sample. Well, in the case of IV, we're looking at everything with our custom program where we care about everything with our trace metals, we care about everything so we don't have a good choice there we'd have to exclude something from our analysis but when you are using an internal standard obviously choose something that's not there choose something with a similar wavelength or not wavelength but similar mass on your mass spec or a a similar ionization energy for your oes that will help tremendously in in getting a good apples to apples reading yeah 
And I know next week is going to be a episode all about internal standards. So if you guys want to learn more, definitely tune in next week because we're going to go into all of the details on how to select internal standards, what you're looking for, and maybe when you shouldn't trust the result that's being corrected by internal standardization anymore. So I think this about wraps up everything for calibration curves. We hope that you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at innergangventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 11 on the ICP Operations Guide, where our team will discuss the big topic of standard additions, internal standards, and isotopic dilution. We hope you join us then and have a fantastic week.